This is the Nielsen Norman Group UX Podcast. I'm Therese Fessenden. I have to tell you, while this was totally unintentional, I think this might be our single most timely podcast episode. Last Tuesday, I got a chance to interview Jeff Robertson, founder and human factor specialist at Chocoblock, a blockchain-oriented UX consultancy. He's also a lecturer at the University of Maryland, specifically on the topic of UX in emerging technology. So we got into the weeds of why people are going crazy about blockchain and how it will play a major role in the development of a metaverse. We'll get into that in a little bit. But then two days later, Facebook announces that they would be rebranding to Meta to better reflect their product offerings in the virtual and augmented reality space, in the metaverse. Now, to be clear, the metaverse is a concept that's been around long before two days ago and long before the Facebook rebrand, but it's moved from the shadows of tech professional jargon into the spotlight, becoming part of our mainstream lexicon virtually overnight, pun partially intended. So, of course, I was compelled by journalistic obligation to follow up with Jeff the day after I heard the news. So, this episode is split into two parts. The first part will be our conversation prior to the bombshell Facebook rebrand announcement around blockchain and the infrastructure of a decentralized metaverse. The second part will be my follow-up conversation with Jeff, in which we informally react to Facebook's announcement and discuss what key questions remain unanswered as we look forward to the future of the metaverse. There's a lot to unpack with this episode, so without further delay, here's Jeff Robertson. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. So you've just started work with um, University of Maryland, right? Yeah. So, you know, long story short, I mean, I remember contacting you back in, what was it, 2018? Maybe being like, look, I'm thinking about looking into blockchain, seeing what's going on in that and from a UX perspective. But, you know, over the years, I've, I've compiled everything that I've learned and turned it into um, a curriculum. Part of that was like what I presented to you um, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, during the seminars. But every year I add to it. And that's what I teach UMD's Human Computer Interaction Master's program. Um, so we tackle, we look at kind of two flavors, um, UX analysis techniques, you know, mm-hmm. qualitative data coding, um, uh, task analysis, things like that. But we focus on the emerging technology of what's going on with blockchain. Um, and so I have them do these various um, kind of uh, UX research methods and, and applying it to looking at at that particular um, field. Yeah. So on that topic, if we wanted to like dive into what blockchain even is, <laughs> I know that yeah. I know you mentioned world computer. So yeah. what is blockchain and how does it relate to the world computer? Sure. So blockchain in itself is really just a, a, a data storage mechanism and I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but imagine like as new information gets kind of added to a, a system, uh, that new information gets kind of encapsulated in a block, which then gets added to the previous block of information. And each block is kind of tied together cryptographically. Um, and it just keeps on, you know, 
growing and growing and growing and growing. And it, the mental image that I have in my head is like, you've probably been in a photo booth before where like you and your friends are doing things and like it keeps spitting out images of every little kind of movement that you make or new kind of stance that you make. But imagine that just is continually growing and growing and growing. And that way you're able to look back through all of the photos and watch the whole trajectory, all the changing of, of information, all the changing of things up to the current point in time. Yeah. Um, so when you take that mechanism and you put it into a system that is also comprised of things like peer-to-peer -peer networks, like computers all over the world coming together, decentralized ledger technology, basically the information that all these nodes are kind of keeping track of, um, and cryptocurrency, you create this new system that incentivizes computers to join and to support it. Like a world computer is made up of lots of computers. They come together and they form this, this new kind of entity. And they're incentivized to do this, to partake through cryptocurrency. Because as they come to consensus on the information that has kind of changed in this system, they formulate a new block. That block goes on top of the other blocks. Every node has a copy of all these blocks. Um, and the computer that helped kind of facilitate um, this consensus gets rewarded in more cryptocurrency. Okay, so it's uh, kind so of like first-person wins. It's like a race to calculate the yeah, sum or whatever good, it might be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's different there's different kind of flavors of that. I don't want to go into too much of the weeds because I know we have limited time here. But two of the main flavors of that are proof of work versus proof of stake. And proof of work. Um, in order to kind of be the first one to go first, you have to solve a very complex cryptographic puzzle. It requires a lot of computational power. Um, whereas proof of stake is more, you it's kind of like a raffle in a way where everyone that's kind of taking part in this, if they have some coins or cryptocurrency of that system, they act like raffle tickets and you get kind of chosen to go first if like your coin gets picked if that yeah. kind of mixes, it's an oversimplification. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, it's kind of funny too, when you mentioned the the photo strip, I almost picture that game Snake, where you used to like mm. have to eat the little the little yep. nuggets or whatever, and then every time you eat the nugget, the, the snake grows, and then- it Grows a little bit, yeah. Grows a little more, grows yeah, a little more. Yeah, it's a good more. point of looking at it. More yeah. information being added to this long chain of, of blocks. Yeah, and, and so it seems like to participate, like you mentioned, there's this need for great computing power. So whenever I think about blockchain, and oh, I guess Bitcoin being the most mainstream implementation of blockchain, mm -hmm. but I often think about who gets to participate in these, it seems like you need a lot of computing power, or do you not? So like, what have you seen in terms of who's adopting this and who's participating? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and, you know, I keep talking about world computers because I feel like it's a better way to kind of structure what's going on and present it, especially for my my class that I teach to human computer interaction students, because let's talk about it as a world computer, human computer interaction, human world computer interaction. What does that look like? Um, and there's lots of these different systems, these world computers. The first one was Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. And the only thing that that Again, I'm oversimplifying, but the main thing that that world computer keeps track of is Bitcoin. Who has what Bitcoin, adding new Bitcoin to the, to the system. But since then, people have taken that concept and created new world computers like the Ethereum world computer. And there's lots of different ones out there. But Ethereum, I think, you know, is a really interesting example to look at, especially from a user experience standpoint, because it allows more than just the underlying cryptocurrency being kept 
track of, to be kept track of. You can keep track of lots of different things. Now, the difference between these two systems is that Bitcoin leverages proof of work. And in a proof of work system, you have to solve a very complex cryptographic puzzle. To do that, you have to have a very powerful computer. Um, and so the problem with that is not everybody can really take part because it would require you uh, to purchase, you know, a system that is, you know, outside um, that of, of the average person to do. And so you have these kind of entities that, that really dominate um, the, the hashing of, of information uh, for, for Bitcoin. Ethereum started off as proof of work, but they are transitioning to proof of stake. And this is actually a transition that has had significant um, change over this past year. But they're, with proof of stake, you don't have to have a very powerful computer. You can just use your own computer. Um, you just have to have some Ethereum locked up in a wallet. Um, so that allows the average person to actually partake in it. And, and so to me, that, that I don't know, I like that more because I really like the idea of world computers being you know, of the people and for the people. And so the ability for anybody to really help support um, a world computer with, you know, the, the computational device that they have, um, I think is a really important thing. Yeah. So on that topic, I think Ethereum is really fascinating because there are so many dApps or decentralized applications that mm -hmm. seem to be using the Ethereum network. So uh, it seems like there's a lot more growth. So in terms of what's picking up steam next. Like there's Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but but what's next in, in the realm of the world computer? Yeah. So I think to answer that question, we have to kind of start a little bit more abstractly. And if you think of like these world computers, this is the mental image that I have. It's like you've got a bunch of computers sitting around like a circular poker table. And on the poker table are poker chips. And we can just say that these poker chips are cryptocurrency and the computers are all watching where these poker chips go, who has what. And, you know, when they come to an agreement on what changes have occurred, a picture gets taken of, of the um, poker table. Everyone gets a copy, which gets added to the previous copies. That's the, the blockchain, the photo strip that I was referencing earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, if we take this concept of the, of the poker chip and let's make it a little bit more abstract. What if that poker chip could not represent just an underlying cryptocurrency, but could represent anything? Um, like a hollow shell that you could put any kind of file you want into. And because of it being part of the system, it gets kept track of in the same manner as cryptocurrency by the nodes that are kind of watching everything. And so what we're seeing is the leveraging of this technology to um, do new and different things. I think one of the biggest terms of this, this year um, are NFTs, non-fungible tokens. The idea of having one of these like poker chips that are being kept track of uh, represents something. Um, in theory, this could be anything. It could be a car deed. It could be your, your land deed. It could be a title to something. It could be your will. You know, it could be a lot of different things that you would want to have um, kept track of. Um, but what it has been first used for is art. People have been using it to keep track of digital art. And if you think about Again, you kind of have to dismiss some of the craziness that we've seen in that space in terms of what's being put in these NFTs and how much they're going for. But the idea that you have a system that can track art um, with such uh, definition, the and I hope I'm saying this word right, but provenance or provenance um, 
of artwork, which is something that deals with like, let's say a, a, a new Monet was found in someone's attic, right? Well, how do you know it's a Monet? I mean, how do you distinguish that? How does it have certificates? Does it have some sort of like authenticity? Like who's guaranteeing this to be that of, 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 of Monet? Um, what if you had a system that is able to track that um, from its origin to whoever has owned it all the way to its present state? That's kind of like what this new system has to offer is that anything, whether it be art or our car title or, um, man, there's so many other things that yeah. you can kind of insert in there, can be kept track of um, with, with such definition. Yeah. Actually, what comes into mind when you say tracking, I think of when I order something online and it gets shipped to my mm -hmm. house, like you have mm -hmm. a tracking number and you can find out where it is and yeah. what what truck it's on or you know you can kind of yep. keep track of things in that way so it seems like when you have these non-fungible tokens right these mm -hmm. these tokens that can't be exchanged um whereas you know cryptocurrency would just be a token right like i could have 25 cents or i could have four quarters and those all equal one mm dollar -hmm. to use like regular money terms but like for non-fungible tokens it's not the same right you've got like your unique identifying item or uniquely identified yeah. item so it, it's really fascinating that art has really embraced this, the art world. And, yeah. but yeah, it, it also kind of confuses me at the same time because it feels like, you know, those certificates that you could sometimes buy where it's like, you can buy a star, you can buy a constellation and like, it has your name yeah. on it. So in, in some cases it almost feels a bit superficial <laughs> in that, in, in that I'm kind of like assigning ownership to something, but I'm curious what you think in, in terms of, you know, how NFTs might be used in other non-ownership types of contexts. Because really, if it is just tracking, it's not just ownership. Am I, am I getting that correct? Yeah, I mean, you can leverage it in, in, in I guess, a lot of different ways. Um, let's use, one thing I think that we're going to see, especially when it comes to art, we'll just kind of use that as, as our basis here, is the idea that is an NFT can be used not just to kind of hold a, a digital piece of art, but to represent the certification of or the authenticity of a physical piece of art. So let's say we go back to this, this new Monet that, that has been discovered or maybe an, an existing one. You know, a institution could create an NFT that represents that. And when that piece of art is in, let's say, um, a, a given museum, that museum's wallet would have that NFT in it. Right. So it's kind of this dual uh, means of certificate. Here's the physical thing. Here is its representation in the digital world being kept track of by the world computer. When we transfer this Monet to another museum, we also transfer its um, NFT. And so they now have the possession of it. And it kind of acts as a double um, authentication mechanism. That requires a little bit of cultural adoption where like we just come to expect everything to have some sort of representation as an NFT and that unless you're getting that NFT, you can't really be sure that you've received the actual physical object, right? If that makes sense. Did it come with papers? Did it come with the NFT? Um, no, no, I don't trust it. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of like a cultural thing that has to be adopted. But I think, again, this kind of goes back to this this notion that as a, as a civilization, as a species, we now have world computers that can keep track of anything that we want. And so as we slowly kind of start leveraging them more and more to keep track of things, it'll just become common to have um, things that are both physical or as well as digital being kind of kept track of 
by that by that world computer. I think it's interesting that you're saying like this cultural shift, like kind of a, a sense of cultural adoption. Like I'm I'm immediately thinking of how in like even certain parts of the country, this is still true. Like you can only buy things in cash and yeah. you don't necessarily have receipts. It's just an exchange. Like, you know, maybe it's somebody having a garage sale and they're selling some of their wares. But if you were to order something online, it would be a bit alarming if you like didn't get a confirmation message, for example. You're just yep. like, did it happen? <laughs> like, am I gonna get this thing? Doesn't feel yeah. legit. <laughs> um, and so it, it seems like there are certain expectations, like shifts in expectations that mm -hmm. need to happen for this technology to really be a embraced, but embracing it is not just for the sake of embracing it, right? It's also about making it the most effective and accurate way of tracking mm -hmm. things. So I'm curious what you've seen, you know, what do you think some of these like hurdles are? Like what are some of the barriers that are preventing people from really adopting or embracing these pieces of technology? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, I want to revert back to a, a, a kind of an independent study that I did back in 2019. Um, I was kind of like getting into this. I, I recruited a bunch of people and ran usability tests on basic wallets. And so this isn't, this is before like NFTs really started taking off. It's not that the technology wasn't there yet. It's just that like we were dealing with just the idea of a wallet that holds cryptocurrency. Seeing what really jams people up. Now, when it comes to how this stuff operates, you're dealing with a real big paradigm shift in what you use to identify yourself to the world computer. We are so much revolving around the idea of um, logging credentials now. You have a user ID and you have a password. And the way that it works with like a centralized system is like, oh, I need to access my Facebook account on my Instagram or at my bank. So what you do is you go to their web app and you say, hey, this is who I am. And on the back end, it says, okay, we have you know, that information. Here is your data. The paradigm shift that's going on now is like, you no longer have that kind of uh, logging credential that you use to, to identify yourself, which can change from system to system. Instead, you have one, you have a private key. And that private key is cryptographically tied to a public key that is kind of stored on, on, the, on the, the world computer. And all of your data, all of your cryptocurrency, all your tokens, everything that you, you kind of do is tied to that private key. And so when you go to a DAP or any of the DAPs that could be built on a, on a given world computer, they all know who you are. And maybe they don't know that it's you, know, you Jeff Robertson, but they're like, oh, it's you, that private key, whoever it is behind that. But it, all of your information follows you around. This concept, I think, is what really trips people up, the idea of the private key, because uh, they're just so used to the notion of, of having a password and, and like a username, like your email. It's not only that like it's you have these things, but the notion that like you have forgiveness if you forget them, right? If you forget your password, oh, I forgot my password. And, you know, the centralized system that has that information sends it to you or sends you the ability to reset it. With a private key, you don't have that. Um, it's like having a safety deposit box at a bank. You have a private key that's given to you. The bank manager has um, another key. You want to access content inside that um, safety deposit box. You both stick your keys in at the same time, unlocks, and you can access it. And that's the only thing that allows you to have access to the point that like, if you were to drop it on the floor and walk away and someone else were to pick it up, they can use it to go and access the drop, 
know, the safety deposit box, right? Yeah. And I don't think that people quite understand that burden of custody. That's what I call it. It's like there's this burden of custody. You are in ownership of your private key. No one else has it. You don't want anybody else to have it because if they have it, then they have access to all of your stuff that's being kept track of by the, the, the world computer. And so getting people to kind of understand that concept, I think is going to be challenging. I mean, once you kind of get it, it's a little bit easier um, once you adopt that mental model. But that was the biggest thing that I saw in my usability studies. People just, just could not wrap their brains around that concept. They kept yeah. thinking that a private key was like your password. Um, anyways. Yeah, that I think that's absolutely true. And I've heard some stories too and read some articles about how there's you know, millions of dollars in cryptocurrency that's literally has been thrown away because yeah. the private key information was on a computer that yeah. got destroyed or got erased. And now there's literally no way to recover that private key. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty wild. The, the consequences that something that seems trivial, if you had a different mental model, like a different mm -hmm. perspective of, or expectations around who's responsible for what, uh, it, it can have some really critical consequences for sure. Yeah. Massive critical error. Yeah. So that's really fascinating because I'm also thinking about the role of biometrics. And I know mm. um, maybe that, I don't know if you have done research in this space, but but I think about biometrics specifically because in terms of like memorizing things or having a password or storing something that is, you know, your way of accessing secure information. It, it's always been fraught with issues and even more so now. If, yeah, if we had like biometrics, for example, that alleviates the burden of that custody where the, the custody responsibility is still there with the owner, but yeah. perhaps, you know, could be alleviated by something like that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, when you think of biometrics, like I guess that could encompass a lot of different things um, from, I guess, fingerprint, eye scanning, facial recognition, heartbeat, you know what I mean? Anything could be, um, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like any kind of like, yeah, exactly. And we see that now in a way, like when you, you pick up your iPhone and it scans your face and it logs you into your phone or like you want to access your, your banking application and you turn on face recognition as your means to do so. What it's doing for you is saying instead of making you type in your password and your username, we'll enter it for you, but we'll only do it if we recognize your face. Um, so I could definitely see that kind of like layered layered mechanism being placed on top of private keys where like you just have something that uses your biometric signature to inject that private key um, into the dap that you're interacting with. And by the way, that's the term that is being used right now for when you um, connect to a dap is, is connecting your wallet. Mm -hmm. um, a wallet is a term that's synonymous with like private key, mm -hmm. but um, you connect. And so when you go to adapt, it says connect your wallet. And what they really mean is like log in. Um, but you're connecting your private key, not logging in with your, your your credentials. But I could definitely see where you would have some kind of biometric layer that would kind of do that for you. Oh, it's the signature of Jeff Robertson. Um, we'll inject the, the private key and now you can have access to all of your information. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really fascinating thinking about that mental model shift because everyone has become so accustomed to that term login. Um, even yeah. with social logins, I'm thinking about how people connect their Google accounts or their Facebook accounts to yeah. their various other 
accounts just as a way to authenticate themselves. So and it's going to be interesting to see that that space really evolve w- with those mental models uh, evolving. Mm-hmm. Whenever I interact with a group of people that work in this space, they all kind of reference this, that you're dealing with developers who think about things from a developer standpoint and not from, you know, and that's just like par for the course for, right. you know, any place that a UX, you know, specialist is working with is like, you got to deal with, with that kind of mentality. Yeah. How do we, um, address the interface of what we're building so that it better, you know, suits the end user. Yeah. Um, I also think too, like the developers, it has kind of been developer centric by necessity, just because there's so little that has really been developed. So I can understand why it it has been developer centric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has that changed much? Do you think? So there's also the issue of like, because it's so nascent, right. In the infrastructure being built, you have this, and everything is also very much open source, right? All this stuff gets like put on GitHub. And so what will happen is a developer wants to create a new, let's say wallet or some sort of application or whatever. So they'll go to GitHub and they'll just kind of copy that stuff that's there, right? And they'll just reuse that for their, for their, for their, um, whatever it is that they're building. But because of that, you start to have these kind of inherited traits, almost like genetics, you know what I mean? Like we all inherit genes from our, from our, our, parents and therefore look like them. Um, so you'll see the same kind of repeating patterns throughout a lot of these different applications for completely different teams, but it's because they've all cloned from the same source. And hopefully over time, we'll get to a point where like what people are cloning from, what people are kind of using has been adjusted to kind of be more user-friendly, Right. And that way it starts to permeate itself throughout this new kind of system of things. That and you hope that these teams start to recognize the need for UX professionals to come in and kind of like help them create a better experience for new users. Because that to me is like the biggest thing. It's like you have these, when you think about the technology adoption life cycle, right? That bell curve, like you have the innovators and then you have like the early adopters and then you have that big gap that exists between the early you know, adopters and the um, early majority, I worry that you're just going to have this very esoteric situation where only the early adopters and the innovators are kind of like stuck in their own little bubble and they're not catering to that next wave of people. And so that next wave of people just doesn't come. It's like, you need to make it accessible to these people. Otherwise they're not going to like, why would they use your product? So we got to start thinking about them. So hopefully developers will start seeing the need for that more and more, or at least the people who are running these projects um, and invite more UX professionals to come in and help refine that. And yeah, that's also like, I think why I, I talk about this. I've been talking about this topic with, with you guys multiple times now, right? Um, why I try to teach a course on it at UMD is to just inform UX um professionals about like what's going on with the space so that, that they can come in with um, a better understanding of how it all works and therefore try to like build a better experience. Yeah. It, it seems like there's kind of two areas where this industry falls a little bit short. The first is there are lots of companies that are like your, to your point, taking things from GitHub, copy paste, and maybe making yeah. some adjustments, but all in all, a lot of the technology remains the same and oriented toward the same people. And the flip side of that, it seems like, you know, UX professionals are also pretty new to this industry and unsure where they can have the most impact. And and it seems like there's a a lack of understanding just because it is such a new space and and B a lack of um, awareness of where they can have the most impact. So 
this is sort of a question that comes up a lot, not just in, in this particular space, but in UX in general, right? Which is should UX professionals in, you know, who are designers or researchers, should they learn how to code? So, you know, the, that question applied to blockchain technologies and world Mm -hmm. computing, you know, should UXers learn some basic blockchain development skills? Like what's, what's your take on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I honestly think that it's important for everyone to learn coding of some degree. There's a balance between like understanding like what can be done, right? And then also like using that to design a better kind of experience. Because sometimes that's a problem. It's like you go to a developer, like I need it to look like X, Y, and Z. And they're like, do you know how hard it's going to be to make it look like that? Like if you have a better idea of how that works, then as a you know a UX specialist, then you can more craftily kind of put things together. So to answer your question in short, yeah, I think it's really, it would be important for UXers who are working in the blockchain space to kind of get a better understanding of how that works uh, developmentally so that you can kind of work with that um, and massaging it into a better a better experience. And this is something that actually I think every, was a couple of years ago, I contacted you or maybe another colleague of yours at, at NNG about this this concept that I was struggling with, with with what I was seeing when I was doing this usability test on wallets. And that is if you want to access your funds, right? If you want to access your funds, um, you have to have the private key on the device that you're, you're using, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have that private key, you can't access your state deposit box. So you might have your private keys on a computer at home that you open up and you can see your, your cryptocurrency in there, whatever cryptocurrency it is. But unless you have that with you as you go about in your daily activities, how, how, do, you, how do you use it? Like It would be like me going to a restaurant with my wife and I see that they accept... Um, cryptocurrency and oh i'd love to pay with it well i can't pay with it because my private keys are on you know my computer at home how do you allow uh multiple devices to be able to use the same private keys allowing you to leverage that in these different situations and guys talked about the concept of omni-channel design the ability to pick up where you left off on a different device now i know that this isn't a, a exact kind of interpretation of that or application of it but what I kind of derived from this, this concept was the idea of like omni wallet design. How do you have your private keys on all of your devices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like that's a, that's a problem that needs to be solved from a technological standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you do that, have the ability to kind of pick up where you are on any device because they all have the same private keys, you can now interact with things no matter where you are, right? Like if I were, you know, out of the country, you know, um, on a trip and I lose my, my phone, I lose my wallet, right? If I could at least convince somebody to lend me their phone or their computer, I could log in to my bank account, cancel my cards, right? Mm-hmm. Well, unless I have the private keys in this kind of system, my private, I can't do that. Like mm-hmm. I can't make any changes because I don't have this identifying mechanism that tells the backend system that it is me. And mm-hmm. so that I see as a very problematic um, hurdle. How that gets solved is going to be through technological advancements uh, in you know, combination, better design, right? Mm-hmm. So that people know um, how to set these kinds of systems up. Maybe they're just there by default. I mean, one way that this could be done is if like Apple says, you know what, we're going to create a special chip that sits inside of all of our new devices. And Samsung has already done this to a degree. I think Samsung 
10, maybe started having this special chip inside the phone that was dedicated to holding private keys. Mm -hmm. But imagine all these devices had special kind of chips inside them that were dedicated to holding private keys. And when you log into a new device after buying it, your Apple ID injects that private key onto that chip inside the device, right? So now I can access the same dApps on my computer as I can on my phone, as I can on another device, as long as I can sign in with like my Apple ID. Um, that's like one possible you know, way of, of doing that. But it's just hypothetical, I guess, right now. Um, yeah. Well, I guess further to your point is a great reason why some UXers should try to get involved in the development space, even if it's just yeah. to dabble, you know, come up with some new perspectives and mm -hmm. address uh, address things like authentication. Um, and it, it's been fascinating too, just uh, in, in some of the client work I've been seeing, you know, there, there are lots of folks who are asking these questions, like how can we make authentication easier? And, and this yeah. is without the world computer in question. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not going to get any easier. Um, but I wanted to ask you another question too about world computing. And, you know, you mentioned how NFTs can act as like a reference for things that exist in the real world. And mm -hmm. I remember when we were first talking about recording this episode that you, you mentioned that there's this metaverse. So I would oh, love for you yeah. to like talk about this metaverse. <laughs> but when I think of metaverse, you, you mentioned something like Ready Player One, which I think is just mm -hmm. so cool. So yeah, if you want to like talk through that, because I feel like that's going to be really important for this next frontier of, of, of design and of development. Absolutely. So yeah, the Ready Player One is a great, I think, example of that, because if you've seen the movie or read the book, you kind of understand the concept of this immersive environment that you go into via um, virtual reality, right? Um, and so that in itself is its own form of, of, of merging technology and has its own kind of user experience that, that could be talked about in a different kind of way. You know, it's, it's a, you know, an area all to itself. But what I think where the world computing kind of aspect of this comes into play is like when you go into the metaverse and you go from one world to another and you're collecting coins and you're buying avatar, you know, stuff and your clothes for your, for your avatar and all these things that kind of follow you around. Like you've probably seen this in the movie. If, if you've watched it, like they open up some kind of like digital purse, right. And they bring out all these different things. Well, what the hell is keeping track of all that? Right. Like, where is that being stored? Well, the way that that would work, is that you have a private key associated with your person, right? Wherever you go in the metaverse, that private key kind of tells the back end, this is who you are, and this is all the tokens that you have. These are all the clothes that you have for your avatar. This, all that information follows you around seamlessly. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I think that there's this kind of the meeting point um, between like the metaverse in terms of this virtual experience and how all that information about you gets tracked so that you have a seamless experience, right? It's just all being tracked by the underlying world computer. And there are already um, metaverse examples out there that are being developed. Decentraland is, is, is a big one um, that is being built, I think, on top of the Ethereum world computer. So it makes me think of this, like in these kind of metaverses, like you have to design for two things. You have to design for the two-dimensional screen that someone might be interacting with on like, you know, a computer desktop. But you also have to design it so that it is virtual. Like you can interact with it in a virtual way as well with like um, VR glasses, right? So 
I know that's kind of a stretch in, in terms of what I'm saying here, but the, the idea that when you design an experience, you have to think about the different ways a human being will be interacting with it. Is it going to be on a two-dimensional screen as we've all become familiar with now, or will it be also through, you know, VR headsets so that you can be yeah. really immersed into, into the thing. Um, but yeah, so the central land, like people are buying up space in there and all these other places like it, and they're building up stuff. They're building up storefronts. You can go in there, you can shop for clothing for your avatars. You can buy artwork, right? Um, and in the central land, it's the one that I'm most familiar with. So that's why I keep talking about it. You have different areas, right? You have like the fashion district, you have the museum district, and like you can walk around um, in these areas and go into buildings and see things. And so if you go into the fashion district, you can see these buildings that are being built. You can go in and, and you know, check out Louis Vuitton, right? Like they could have their own shop there and you can look at all these things, like the bags and things that they might be selling. Now, what's interesting is like, how do you leverage that as a company? Do you just sell, um, accessories for people's avatars, right? Or do you buy an avatar handbag and you also get one in the mail, right? Like there's different ways that could be, that could be leveraged, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just another kind of um, world that people can kind of go into um, and, and do things. I think that they were holding concerts in there um, recently. They had the Metaverse Festival going on in Decentraland. So you kind of go in and watch the avatars of musicians or other artists do things. Um, yeah. so I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It takes, but I, I worry about the certain generation, I don't want to say generations. I don't like tying things to people's age, but you know, it might be something that is just so familiar to younger generations coming up that they're able to kind of go into it. Whereas somebody like, you know, you know older generations might go, that, that seems ridiculous. Right? Yeah. It is interesting to think of that. And, and I would say it, it's also interesting to think about how e-commerce when that mm -hmm. first came about, actually, it's funny you mentioned Louis Vuitton because a lot of luxury brands were actually very resistant to e-commerce mm -hmm. uh, because they were concerned it would erode their brand. They were concerned that they wouldn't be able to help authenticate, you know, the the, the yeah. or the authenticity of each bag, for example, uh, mm -hmm. or any uh, like Rolex too. I don't think they even do e-commerce. They just mm -hmm. show you watches, and you have to go to an in-store experience to actually purchase one. So in some cases, it's almost like with e-commerce, we had the same response and mm -hmm. looking forward, you know, looking at this metaverse as a way of tracking things and our acclimation to two-dimensional interfaces. Like we've gotten very used to that. We've gotten used to going on Amazon or Google shopping or whatever mm -hmm. online store. And it all happens on a two-dimensional screen. Mm -hmm. But there's also like massive improvements in things like VR, but not just VR and not just augmented reality, but mixed reality where you've got a little yeah. bit of both. And that's where I think this metaverse is probably going to have a really huge impact because mm -hmm. you've got these essentially mirrored experiences. You've got your real life experience, you're tracking things in a digital space. And in a lot of ways, it's it's not that different from how the internet has changed things. It's really that now we're able to track things in more than two dimensions, it seems like, and in more than just transactions. Yeah. Huh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. So Jeff, if people wanted to learn more about your work or how to reach you, uh, where could you point people to? It could be social media channels, websites. Yeah. Um, the best hub to go to would be my personal site, jeffrobertson.me. Um, and from there you can access, you know, just kind of blog posts on different research things that I've been involved with, um, find social media links, stuff like that. 
All right. Well, Jeff, this has been wonderful. Um, Thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. So we recorded our episode Tuesday and this was Mm -hmm. before we knew anything there weren't even rumblings about this. So I feel like it's worth adding some additional context since now it's like, wow, this is like a whole new angle yeah, absolutely. with which we can look at this. So so we talked about this metaverse and how there are all these things we can essentially track, things we can like have information about. And like that can be great, especially if it's decentralized and if people have, you know, interest Mm -hmm. in basically establishing a way of authentication and and you know being able to really interact in new ways but now it's like a whole new question uh it's and and actually when when facebook rebranded um it kind of reminds me of all of the times that like comcast or (laughs) time warner had like a a lot of really negative press and they were just saying okay we're we're gonna change our name we're now xfinity or we're now spectrum and whatever the other brands are and and that's first what came to mind but yeah looking even more deeply it it is a bit interesting to see the response (laughs) so far in, in like the the past 24 hours so yeah what are your kind of initial yeah. thoughts about what has just happened i go back to the whole ethos of like the decentralized movement right this is something that is all about a means to break free of systems that are currently under like mm-hmm. some sort of centralized control and this is you know driven servers you know that um companies have that store all of our data and even you know banks with, with with central you know currency or government currency. I don't like talking about the financial aspects of blockchain because I think it really defeats the point um, or the larger picture of things, which is like the idea. Why I keep talking about these larger world computers that transcend. Yeah, I mean, in in my control. mind, it's almost like the equivalent of um, saying like summarizing the internet to being only email. It's like that's how it feels to me when we talk about cryptocurrency. Like, yes, email is important. Yes, cryptocurrency is important, yeah. but it's not the only. Uh, implication of this type of technology the only thing yeah and if you remember in my seminar back in 2019 i talked about these kind of different situations of of these blockchain systems specifically the difference between like a permissioned versus permissionless system and a permissionless system is one where anybody can become a node right you can have your computer or your very large rig if you're doing proof of work connect to the network and help support it. And in return, you're earning cryptocurrency as an incentive to help support this decentralized system. Now, the other one is is permissioned where you have to be invited. And that's where Facebook or Meta, whatever we want to call it now, it kind of comes into play here because they were working on a cryptocurrency. They were calling it Libra or DM. I don't know where they are right now, but the system that they had uh, that they're working on was a permission system where you would invite people, corporations, other corporations to be a node to help support this 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 um this system. And so my question is like, you know, if they're building out this metaverse, like where is all this data going to live? Is it going to be on their permission system that they were working on for for Libra or DM? 
Um, and if that's the case, like you start to get away from, again, the ethos of the, the whole decentralized movement. All of a sudden, this concept of building these systems that transcend corporate or government control are just being reinvented by a corporation in order for them to build their own platforms on top of. Um, you know, along with the idea of these decentralized systems where you have NFTs and you have cryptocurrencies and you have these assets that you as an individual have custody of because you have your own private key. No one else has it. You have that private key. How does that work, you know, with what Facebook is trying to, to, to pull off here? Are they going to be in custody of this stuff? Like, does it, is it attached to your, your, your Facebook ID? And this is also going with the assumption that they will be building all this on top of a um, system that's, that's, that's similar in its mechanics to, to what we've been talking about with blockchain, that they would have nodes that kind of support all this stuff. Um, so are we moving away from, 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 from the, the true kind of philosophy of, of the decentralized movement while we allow a corporation such as Facebook to kind of <laughs> build their own variation of it? Because currently we, we have versions of, of the metaverse. We have different worlds. We have crypto voxels. We have the central land. And these are things that are built on top of a, both believe are built on top of Ethereum. Um, and there's other ones out there as well. And you as an individual are able to purchase land inside these these worlds can you purchase land inside of this facebook's metaverse like i'm just kind of curious like what they're going to do yeah. um and the reason i bring all this up is because as we've seen with all technology there's kind of always a trade-off with with things if you allow a company to kind of govern something or a central thing to govern it then like you can get maybe better usability out of it right like if we want to talk about ux because they're in control. They can cater the experience to you, but that comes at a cost where you're kind of letting go of, of control of things um, uh, for that convenience. I mean, we can look at this in a lot of different examples, whether it be, you know, Mac versus um, PC, where PCs, you have the ability to do more custom adjustments and Mac are like, we're really put together a package where it's harder for people to kind of really, um, you know, make adjustments on their own. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious where, where, where it will go. Cause if people kind of flock to a corporate run metaverse like that, then there might be a loss of some of the great things that the whole decentralized mm. movement is about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I remember during that seminar that you taught and you know, it's wild how much it's changed in just two years. Um, which which really makes the <laughs> yeah, class yeah. that I've been teaching, you know, emer uh, along with my colleague Alia Joyce. Um, but yeah, emerging patterns and in interface design is one of those things that we're constantly updating, and like even more so now, like a, a matter of one day, and all of a sudden, it, it has really opened up this whole new world. But but yeah, back in 2019, we were discussing like uh, it was DAOs, right? So uh, can you talk a bit more about those? Because those were kind of the supposedly who would be the the organizations to create these right yeah the mm -hmm. the DAOs, the uh, decentralized autonomous organizations and so what they are um is again it's groups of people that come together from all over the world um for common purpose and they write their own kind of uh, mm -hmm. i guess bylaws if you will um for how it will be structured and how it's run uh, a lot of times it's, it's very democratic in, in a way where, you know, you, you vote on things that you want to have done for the project you're working on. Oh, um, for example, let's say that I was trying to do some contract work for a DAO 
what I could do is write a proposal for what it is that I wanted to help them out with. Um, that gets reviewed by members and they vote on whether or not um, that contract gets, gets taken up and I get, you know, paid uh, the fees and I'm, I'm charging and I, and I do the work. Um, this is a very democratic kind of uh, way, way to how they operate. Um, and, and currently, you know, they're the ones that are, are creating things like Decentraland um, and I guess crypto voxels. I don't know as much about that. Um, but also the Rarible platform, which is where a lot of NFTs um, are, are sold, are created and sold. But it's all, you know, kind of mm -hmm. run by these these DAOs. But um, it's a new way of, of, of kind of creating a, a business-like structure, but without the classic, you know, corporate or business. Um, right. Hierarchy. So, yeah, moving away from that very hierarchical, centralized type of organization mm -hmm. and, and moving more toward a kind of, uh, I, I like that you use the word permissionless too, which kind of really harkens to the point that this is open. Um, and this new system yeah, would, yeah. would not be as open. Um, and yeah, it seems like there are going to be lots of like potential implications. And I, I was reviewing their statement just so I could be caught up to speed. And I think they've released some information about the metaverse previously. Uh, I think it was like September. So I saw one of their mm -hmm. statements from September, which was along the lines of, oh, we're not building this alone. We'll be you know, working with lots of other individuals, like, like supposedly, okay. you know, legislators cool. as well as other uh, organizations. Now, who that is, you know, we're, we still have yet to see, but it does, it does kind of make yeah. me wonder, you know, what is this going to mean for, the participants in this uh, metaverse and what exactly is going to be incentivized as part of the metaverse. So just thinking about the fact that lots mm. of social media makes money on advertisements, for example. So it's probably going to be a big motivation to somehow make advertisements a part of this metaverse. And I can see, you know, potential issues yeah. with that. Um, and actually what, what comes to mind is actually, I used to live in Hawaii uh, several years ago and in Hawaii, uh, there's a law against, at least on Oahu, there's laws against billboards. Like there are no billboards in Hawaii because the idea is you want mm -hmm. to be able to expose all of the natural beauty that Hawaii has to offer. And I'm glad for it, right? You get to see all this wonderful yeah. stuff. There's no advertisements blocking the way. But I can envision that same feeling that I felt when I came back from Hawaii, which is, oh my gosh, billboards are everywhere. There's ads on the highway. And I can yeah. imagine something similar you know, happening where maybe we've become accustomed to not having ads everywhere we look but now if my dog food is running out will amazon be able to be part mm -hmm. of this metaverse like who is going to be part of this metaverse who is going to be telling me ads of like hey maybe you should buy this dog yeah. food for your dog instead of that dog food so it's, it's kind of interesting to see like what what are the motivations behind interested parties and is that going to match up with what ultimately user goals are and i don't think users even have a goal at mm -hmm. this moment to be part of a system like this, maybe as, as an enthusiast or maybe as like entertainment, but um, yeah. this is definitely one of those uh, unknown frontiers or new frontiers where there is a lot that, and kind of going back to our conversation yet, or not yesterday, but last week, that, you know, people are not going to have an appropriate mental model for this because the world has been two dimensional for like, or I should say the digital world has been two dimensional mm -hmm. for the last several decades and now it's going to be three-dimensional so yeah. um so yeah it's definitely yeah. one you know makes me wonder what that's going to mean for 
how we interact with this metaverse. Your comment about the advertisements, I mean, we've been talking about mm -hmm. Ready Player One a couple times, um, but I don't ever remember that scene in the movie where they're, it's not a you know, one to one comparison to what's kind of going on now, but they're, the, the company or the evil corporation was talking about how they can leverage up to like 90% of visual real estate <laughs> for advertisements and the player. You know what I mean? Like, that's like kind of what I'm worried about is if you have a centralized entity that's kind of controlling things, you know, you're at the mercy of how they want to allow you to interact with, yeah. with stuff. Like, I do think there's like, I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, I see lots of potential for it being a good thing. And then on the flip side, I could see it as having potential for being abused in the same way our current, you know, mobile devices and applications have kind of exploited our attention spans as well. So it is, it is interesting to think about and also terrifying to think about at the same time. But yeah, it, it's, yeah. and I wish I had like a happy note to end on. And I kind of want to end on like a happy note if I were to put a cap off on the episode. But, um, but yeah, I guess if I were to think about anything positive, it would be that conversations like this have become much more critical than they have in just in a matter of 24 mm -hmm. hours. And I think that's a good thing, even if it does make us feel bad a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess, you know, if you had to offer advice to people who are starting to wonder, like, how can I best get involved in this space or advice to maybe folks who are involved in this space, but now we've got, you know, corporate entities that have capital that want to contribute to this space. Like if, what advice could you offer to people who are trying to get in on this? Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Big question. It, I know. A, knowing that you have, you have a company like Meta out there that is like, has the capital, it has the infrastructure to take everything that has been done kind of so far and, and to do it in a very kind of, you know, controlled way. Is both scary, but it's also cool because you're like you can, you know you have someone who's going to legitimize at least conceptually the things that are being built. I mean, I guess my advice for anybody out there is like you know think about your core beliefs as a person and what you believe in. You know the things that you think are problematic with the status of today, with with how companies out there have used our data, you know, um, and often problematic ways and kind of think about that going forward with what you want to support. If you want to get into, you know, the development of things out there outside of getting a job with meta, right? There are lots of these DAOs um, that you can approach and, and try to work with to offer your services to them um, and to get involved in, in a, in, the, in their, I guess in their roadmap, you know, like being a part of their, the whole organization and you can be a vote. You can be someone who, who tries to shape and mold the service or product that the DAO is, is, is building and evolving. Um, so there is opportunity there uh, to kind of get involved um, again, outside of just like trying to get a job with Meta. Yeah. To, to I think what you mentioned as like really reflecting on what it is you're a signing up for, but B you know, thinking about who it is you're serving. And I often use that term, you know, who you're serving or that phrase, who you're serving, because I, I feel like as yeah. long as we know that our business will have goals and that's fair because we do need to pay our bills. But 
as long as we know who it is we're we're trying to help and have that as our north star for what it is we ultimately create then then i do think there's you know opportunity to make something better and and keep ourselves in check now i i guess if i were to think yeah. of anything to add it would be that a lot of times our incentive structures cause us to make decisions that are otherwise mm-hmm. you know maybe ethically fraught right when i think of certain organizations yeah. i'm not going to name any specific ones but this is everywhere like conversion rate right if your conversion rate is double what it was in the previous year then you're probably going to get a bonus for it right you'll probably get rewarded with greater title greater pay you know there there are lots of positive mm-hmm. things that come from helping your business to succeed but the flip side of that is is that we often will get tunnel vision on Oh well, if we just increase revenue in this area, we'll be great, and and we kind of lose sight of the need that ultimately we're we're serving, and that and that need actually can bring a tremendous amount of value when we kind of forget the value that that can bring. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if like mm-hmm. incentive structures will change as these designs become much more embedded in our lives. And, and to you know Facebook's point, I don't want to kind of give this sense of doom and gloom. It will take. A while for for Meta to reach its oh, maturity. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I do think we have time, and that's something that's very rare. I feel like usually when these technologies happen, it's just like surprise. Here's a new uh, life changing technology, and now you have to learn how to live with it. But but in a way, mm-hmm. we're we're kind of getting a heads up, and and I do think that bodes well for us, so that we can we can better prepare as designers, and also kind of prepare a, a bit as a society, and hopefully. Know, have some key decision makers involved in the beginning. But yeah, that's my little rant. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's an excellent point. It's, it's, we do have kind of a heads up and it looks like we know this time so we can all be better prepared as a society um, and how we want to be involved or hopefully have some sort of yeah. voice in how things go. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining again on a very short notice. And Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Of and course. I'm excited to see, you know, what lies ahead and, you know, what, what will basically soon lie all around us <laughs> with augmented and virtual reality. Yes. But yeah, yes. Um, that's, mm-hmm. I guess that's the show. So thanks everyone for listening. That was Jeff Robertson. His website is jeffrobertson.me. Check out the show notes for links to things that we chatted about, but also our website has loads of free UX content, like articles and videos. And this month we have two more upcoming conferences and training opportunities, a two-day intranet employee experience symposium starting November 9, and a five-day qualitative research series starting November 15. You can find details on all of these, our virtual conferences and more, at www.nngroup.com. And of course, if you like this show and want to support our work, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. And no matter what platform you use, please hit subscribe. This show is produced by me, Therese Fessenden, and all editing and post-production is by Jonas Zellner. That's it for today's show. Until next time, remember, keep it simple.